This Parsha podcast is dedicated in loving memory and Le'ilu Nishmas, Mindel Bas, Rabtzvi Hirsch, the mother of our dear friend, Dr. Paul Block. Mindel, known as Millie, was a remarkable woman who overcame a very difficult childhood, and she built an incredible legacy, meriting, in fact, to hold her own great-great-grandchildren. Beloved by all who knew her, Millie will be sorely missed. May her soul be elevated in heaven. Before I begin, I have a cute story to say. In my son Yehoshua's school, so the kids, they rotate, the eighth graders rotate. Who is going to read from the Torah? Who's going to lane every Monday and Thursday? And Yeshua, given that he had his bar mitzvah a couple of months ago, he signed up for Parsha's Hazino for this week's Parsha. Now, he doesn't know how to lane. He's a little kid. He needs me to train him. The truth is, I'm not really an expert, but I know how to read with the cantillation marks. And if you practice enough times with the cantillation marks, well, then you train yourself to be able to read it even without the cantillation marks, and you can read it in the Torah. So last night we were practicing over and over again. And when he got to school this morning, he was able to read it flawlessly. Now, I, I prayed elsewhere. I davened elsewhere this morning. And today something happened that never happened or rarely happened, you know, the almost 23 years since my own bar mitzvah. I could think of... Perhaps one other time when this happened, there was no one to read from the Torah. Now, typically, I'm not the guy, but they started walking around the room. Could you read from the Torah? Could you read from the Torah? And I said, sign me up. Where do I sign? I'm ready to go. Because I had practiced with Yoshua so many times last night. So I figured I'd share that story. We're about to dig into Parshas Hazinu. And I thought it was one of those examples of when the Almighty's, you know, was winking at you. Or maybe there's even a lesson to this, that when you're going to be needed for something, the Almighty will always arm you with the tools to do it. There was going to be no one else at Shachos, at the morning prayers, who knew how to read, and somehow the Almighty worked it, that I will be sufficiently trained and ready to go. Cute story, I figured I'd share. Of course, we have an absolutely iconic Parsha. The bulk of our Parsha is the Song of Ha'azinu. This is the third of three songs of the Torah. Of course, the song is forward-looking. It looks to the future. It looks at the past. It is predictive of major events and certainly trends of Jewish history, of course, with uncanny accuracy, as the commentaries point out. It talks about Messianic times. It talks about when the Jewish people will be in their land, when they'll be kicked out. The Ramban, in verse 40 of chapter 32, he quotes the Midrash, and he says, this song is so great, because it talks about what's happening now, and it talks about the past, and it talks about the future, it talks about this world, and it talks about Olam Abba. So this song really has everything in it. And in fact, there is a tradition that the 613 words of this song correspond to the 613 mitzvahs in the Torah, one for each mitzvah. So, of course, it's an exquisite parsha from beginning to end, very poetic, 
very flowery. This is an exquisite song. Today I want to focus on the second verse of our parsha. It's a short verse. Ya'arov kamatar litchi. May my teachings, Moshe tells the Jewish people, drip like the rain. May my utterance flow like the dew, like rain showers upon vegetation, like raindrops upon the grass. Again, very flowery, very poetic. He's talking about the four types of rain, or he's mentioning four types of rain. There's, there's rain, there's dew, there's like stormy rain showers, and there are raindrops. And Moshe's comparing his speech his words, this song, this Torah, to rain, and specifically to the four types of rain. So what does this mean? You open Rashi, Rashi tells you that this is a comparison to Torah. Like rain, like this variety of rains, Torah is similar to rain and to the various different types of rain in a whole host of ways. And I was thinking, we're nearing the end of the Torah. We are in the penultimate parsha, and thus the penultimate episode of this sixth cycle of the parsha podcast. And please, God, we're gearing up for the seventh cycle. And I thought it would be interesting and certainly helpful to see what we can learn about Torah from this comparison, from the comparison of Torah to rain. I wanted to survey the various ways that Torah is similar to rain and to the variety of rains. And when I examined the sources and I looked at the commentators, of course, starting with Rashi, but moving on to some of the other commentators, what I discovered was an absolute masterclass on Torah, on what our relationship with Torah ought to be, what is expected of us as we approach Torah, how we benefit from Torah. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to survey the various teachings, the various commentators, and assemble from them lessons about the Torah, an incredible compilation of lessons, all sourced in a single verse, with only one verse. And the comparison to rain, we can learn all about what Torah is, and maybe we will discover why it's not just us who are obsessed with the Torah study. Jews throughout the millennia, throughout the centuries, throughout the exiles, the ups and downs, the ebbs and flows of our history have been obsessed with Torah. Maybe we'll find some answers. So let's start with Rashi. Rashi tells us, Torah's like rain. How so? Torah provides life for the world, just as rain provides life for the world. Imagine what the world would look like without rain. It would not be a very pleasant place for a very long time. Rain, of course, is essential not just to drink, but it's also necessary for any food. Absent rain, there's no vegetation. There's no vegetation, there's no food, but I'm carnivorous, I'll just eat steak. Well, where does the steak come from? It ultimately comes from the vegetation. Without rain, without water, 
We are doomed. Everyone wants to go to a different planet. Everyone wants to check out Mars. The biggest problem you're going to have is there's no water. There's no rain. Our system is so wonderful with the clouds and the evaporation and the precipitation. It's all wonderful. And the rain is so helpful and beneficial. It's so life-giving. If there's a drought, there is death and devastation. And that's Torah, Rashi tells us. Torah is the same thing. It's also critical for the world's survival. The world cannot endure without Torah. This is an amazing idea, Rashi. This is the very beginning, very beginning of our study. We discover something fascinating. Torah is as essential to the world's continuity as rain. Without Torah, there's no life. Without Torah, there's devastation. This is an idea that Rashi brings many places. The Talmud talks about it. Torah ensures the continuity of the world. And now we have an example. What would the world look like without Torah? Absent Torah, the world would be similar to the barren wastelands of Mars and Jupiter and Saturn, any place that is inhospitable to life without rain. That's a pretty intense way to start this study, but let's move on. Moshe tells us that it's also like dew. Well, if we already have rain, why do we need dew? So Rashi tells us that when it rains, most people are happy, but some people are not happy. Why? Because they're traveling. And suddenly the roads are muddy. And they had a baseball game planned, and now it's rained out. And they wanted to go spend some time at the beach, and now it's all sloshy and muddy. Or, as she tells us, someone had a cistern, a vat full of wine, and now it's been diluted. So rain, it does dampen the spirits, pardon the pun, of some people. And Torah, it's just good. There's no bad. And therefore, it's like do as well, because everyone loves dew. Dew is the, you know, the lighter precipitation. It doesn't disturb anyone, but it still provides immense benefits for the world. Torah is like dew. It spawns universal joy. And Torah is also like a rain shower, says Rashi. When a rain shower comes accompanied by stormy winds, that ensures that the grasses, that the vegetation, they grow, they flourish, they blossom, they flower. So too, the words of Torah make a person who studies it grow and flourish and flower and blossom. And Torah is like droplets, strong droplets, says Rashi. The final kind of precipitation of our verse Rashi tells us it is a strong raindrops akin to arrows being fired. Now, unlike the previous three types of precipitation, Rashi doesn't explain the benefit of this kind of rain. Perhaps we can speculate that the term that Rashi uses, Rashi says that it's called revivim, 
that's the Hebrew name for this kind of rain, because it fires like arrows. Yorekechetz, it fires like arrows. The Talmud uses this term, firing like arrows, without getting uh, too graphic, to describe fertility. So perhaps what Rashi is hinting to over here is that the fourth element, the fourth component, the fourth similarity that Torah has with rain, this particular type of rain that fires like arrows, perhaps is that it unlocks creativity. It enables us to have vitality and continuity. There is a precedent for this idea. Torah, we're told in our sages, the words of our sages, Torah is the only way to create something new that did not exist in this world previously. Torah is a way, we read, to create new worlds, new vistas and new frontiers. We did a podcast on this on one of my other channels many years ago. I don't know, maybe like seven or eight years ago. But maybe that's what Rashi's hinting to over here, the fourth quality of Torah and the way it's similar to this particular type of rain, and that is that it unlocks creativity. The ability to make up something new is fostered, is bolstered by Torah. So just getting started over here in our study of what Torah is all about and why Moshe would compare it to rain and the variety of rains that he mentions, Rashi tells us four things. It'll give us life, like rain. It'll bring us joy, joy for everyone, universal joy, like dew. It brings growth like storm winds and stormy winds that accompany rain, and it will unlock creativity. We benefit greatly from Torah. It benefits us. It benefits the world. It brings about wisdom and joy and growth and creativity. Where do we sign? How do I subscribe to the Parsha podcast? How do I make sure that I don't miss an episode? Not in this cycle and not in the upcoming one. There's something here for everyone. And that's just Rashi. The Balaturim points out that we find four, the number four associated with Torah elsewhere. We have four different types of rain, and that's hinting to, says the Balaturim, to the fact that every time you study Torah, you have to study it four times. And he quotes the Talmud in the book of Erevin on page 54b, the Talmud tells us that that is how Torah was initially studied. Moshe would study it from God and would teach it to Aaron. And then Aaron's two sons would come in and Moshe would teach it to Aaron and Aaron's two sons. And the elders would come in and Moshe would teach it to Aaron, Aaron's two sons, and the elders. And then all the rest of the Jewish people would come in and Moshe would teach it a fourth time to Aaron, to Aaron's two sons, to the elders, and to the whole nation. And then Moshe would leave. And Aaron would teach it. And this would be a fourth time for Aaron's children. And then he would leave. And then the children of Aaron would teach it. And then the elders would teach it as well. Concludes the Talmud, everyone 
would hear it four times. Says the Talmud, from this we learn that when you teach a student, you have to teach a student a matter of Torah four times. If Aaron, who's studying under the tutelage of Moshe, and he had to hear it four times, his grasp, his understanding, his grip on the material was insufficient after only three times. Certainly us simpletons, studying from other simpletons, not from Moshe, we need to hear everything four times. I remember hearing in yeshiva that if you look at the standard edition of the Talmud, the lines of Rashi and Tosafos on the margins, they always start with four lines on top. And that's hinting, I was told, that we have to read everything four times before moving on. Rabbi Weinberg of Blessed Memory used to say that this mimics the growth of a seed. You plow it, that's one. You plant it, that's two. You harvest it, that's three. And you consume it. You digest it. You absorb the message, that is four. For us to truly assimilate the messages of Torah within us, we have to study it a minimum of four times. And that is hinted to, says the Balaturim, in the four types of rain featured in our verse used to describe Torah. One of the other commentators points to something really interesting. Rain, of course, is necessary. You want to plant You want something to grow? You want to have some yield in your field? You need rain. But it rains. And there's no benefit. You don't see anything for all that rain. If the field is plowed and the seeds are planted and it rains, the next day you go out in the field and it's identical. There's no change. The impact of the rain is totally imperceptible. And that's because, he tells us, because the benefits of rain are delayed. You only see them much later. Yes, there is change, but the change happens on the subterranean level. And Torah is like that as well. You study Torah, and you were promised. Rashi tells us it'll bring you joy and wisdom and life. Oh, you're about to absorb the Almighty's wisdom, and you'll be elevated. You'll become like an angel, and your life will be forever changed. We, We have promised a lot when we start to study, and we go study. And we put in an hour, two hours, a week, a month. And the change really is not perceptible. And why? Because it's like rain. You want to build a big tree? A sequoia tree? An oak tree? A cedar? A cedar of 
Lebanon. There's a lot of rain that has to go into that. And a lot of time and patience. Torah is like rain. The impacts take some time before they surface. I think this is very comforting to remember. We may feel frustrated at the lack of any appreciable change. Now we know the reason why. There is change. There is dynamic altering of who we are when we study Torah. But at the beginning, like rain, it's all happening beneath the surface. Eventually, it will bubble forth. Eventually, it will blossom. Eventually, it will arrive at the surface. I have the great privilege of studying Talmud with my son, my aforementioned son, Yehoshua, on nights that I don't have any classes, no podcasts to record, no study partners. We try to study every night. And a couple of weeks ago, we encountered a very interesting teaching in the Talmud. This is the book of Ta'anit, or Tainus, as they say. Page 4a. The Talmud says that a young, dynamic Torah student is like a seed underneath a clod of earth. Once it sprouts, once it blossoms, it continues to blossom. That is the statement here in the Talmud on page 4a of the book of Ta'anit. And Rashi explains that once it begins to grow and flourish and blossom, it just keeps on going. And when I read this comment in the Chastuni, now maybe there's an explanation. We grow in a way similar to vegetation. Man is like the tree of the field, the verse tells us. Torah is like the rain. The impacts of the rain, they take some time to appear. And when the growth is subterranean, it can be kind of frustrating. You can feel perhaps that this is futile. And there's a risk of this young, dynamic Torah style to say, I'm not interested. I'm opting out. This is so hard and I see no difference. But once it surfaces, once it blossoms, that's it. You've hit some pay dirt. And now, once you ascend, you're like a runaway train. You're a force to be reckoned with. You've had some success. You've seen the byproducts of this rain. And now you know it's not futile at all. And now you're just going to continue on watering and the plant will continue on growing and blossoming forth. 
another incredible idea about the comparison between rain and Torah. There's a very long comment in the Orachayim, and he makes a bunch of connections between Torah and rain. The first thing he tells us is, rain, well, that provides life and vitality for the world. And Torah is like rain in a literal sense because it is the means of exchange for sustenance and rain. Why does God give the world rain? Why does God ensure? In what merit do we earn rain and its concomitant sustenance? It's because of Torah. There's a transaction that happens over here. We buy, so to speak, the rain with Torah. And if there is no flower, if there is no rain, if we don't have any sustenance, the answer to why we're in that situation is because there's no Torah. You have failed to buy it. God lets us buy on credit. So sometimes even without us paying, so to speak, for rain and grain and flour, we'll get some of it. But really, without Torah, the Almighty doesn't desire, so to speak, to give us rain and, by extension, food. That's the first thing he tells us about the connection between Torah and rain. And the Orochayim tells us something else. In the latter half of the verse, it talks about different kinds of grasses. There is thin grass, and then there is thicker vegetation. And there's also different kinds of rain. There's a thin rain droplet versus a thicker, more intense torrential rain. And he says something really interesting. The verse pairs a big rain with a big vegetation, a recipient of that rain. And on the lower half of the scale, on the other end of the spectrum, it pairs a very thin rain, a small droplet with thin grass. And he tells us that the Almighty expects every person to study whatever is commensurate to their ability. And that's if someone is stronger and more more robust and more capable, and they're like a thick vegetation, then the amount of rain that showers upon them, the amount of Torah that they are expected to study is pretty high. If someone's just a feeble, thin grass then the rain that descends upon that grass is an easy droplet, a pleasant droplet. If someone is not as capable, if someone does not have the same ability, then what is expected of them is commensurately less. The demands that the money places upon a person to study are commensurate to their ability. And he quotes a steery Midrash. The Midrash says that when someone 
dies, and they are summoned before the heavenly tribunal, one of the questions that they're going to ask is, well, did you study Torah? And when someone says, well, I did, I studied scripture, then they're going to tell that person, well, why didn't you study Mishnah? And if someone says, I did scripture and Mishnah, they will say to them, why didn't you study Talmud? And so on. If someone studied some Talmud, then they'll say, well, why didn't you study more Talmud? If someone studied all of Talmud, they'll move on to the next subject, and the next subject, and the next subject. They're always pushing them a little bit beyond what they have accomplished. But if someone studied just Scripture, they will not ask that person, well, why didn't you study the most advanced, esoteric, arcane parts of the Kabbalistic literature? That's beyond them. The stronger rain is on the stronger and more robust vegetation. The lighter, more pleasant rain is on the weaker, more feeble grasses. If you can do more, it is incumbent upon you to do more. No one is expected to do more than they can. And that's another lesson we learned from this comparison of rain, the variety of rains on the variety of recipients of those rain. The more you can handle, the more you are expected to do. And finally, the Talmud makes a lesson of its own from this comparison of Torah to rain. The Talmud says that if someone is a fitting Torah scholar, they are righteous, they are pious, they're good, they have refined character. Someone like that They're supposed to be like the dew. It's very pleasant. It's very nice. It's very easy. But if you have a Torah scholar who's not refined, who doesn't have resplendent character, who is lacking in their behavior, who isn't living up to what's expected of a Torah scholar, someone like that should be killed the words of the Talmud, should be killed with a torrential downpour in a hurricane, in a tsunami, in a cyclone. My grandfather, blessed memory, quoted a teaching in the name of the Gona Vilna. What does it mean that if someone studies Torah, it's actually in one version of this, the way the Talmud describes it, This is from the book of Titus, page 7a. In one variety of studying, the rain should be harmful and result in their death. So the Gon of Vilna is quoted to say that Torah is actually a double-edged sword. And he offers sources that compare Torah to a sword, to fire, and to water. In the hands of a skillful swordsman, a sword can be helpful. In an unskilled individual, it could be deadly. 
Torah is like a sword. Torah is like a fire. Fire can upgrade things. You can make metal. And you could improve food. And you could do clay and brick making. All kinds of great things can be improved with fire. But it could also be deadly. It could also be destructive. Torah is like fire. And Torah is like water. It could quench your thirst. It could raise your produce. You could also drown in it. And the idea is a powerful idea. He quotes the Talmud. There's water, there's dew. They descend upon the ground and they make things grow. What grows? Well, trees and plants and vegetation, but also thorns and weeds and thistles. Moreover, he points out that the weeds actually benefit more from the water than the vegetation does. Torah is compared to rain, to dew, to various types of precipitation. Torah will facilitate growth. And who's the plant? The plant is the person. If the person is a weed, if he is chock full of bad character, hubris, arrogance, anger, impatience, a feeling of superiority over other people, if a person is weeds, the Torah will make those weeds grow and they'll grow even more wild than before. Torah will actually be harmful for someone who is corrupt. This is a very interesting and novel discovery. Torah is like rain. And this rain will cause the plants to grow. What kinds of things will grow? Depends what kinds of seeds we have in the ground. We would have thought that Torah is just good. Deposit Torah upon someone. And no matter how terrible they may be, no matter how awful and execrable their character may be, They'll flourish. They'll improve. It'll happen on its own magically. The Goan of Vilna reveals to us, based upon the Talmud, other sources, that that is not true. Torah is like rain. It will augment and amplify and increase whatever the person is, whatever the plant is, whatever we have started here in the ground. If that is good, we'll have a lot more good. If that is bad, we may end up with some more bad. If someone is rotten and corrupt and evil, Torah will make that grow as well. And he quotes an interesting law that states that if you have a corrupt student, you are prohibited from teaching them. 
First, they should improve their ways. First, they should upgrade their seed. And only then can you allow them into the academy. Torah is going to increase a person. More power, more intelligence, more spirituality. For the corrupt, they'll become more devious, more cunning. Yes, they will become more spiritual. But what's going to be if they're bad? Now they'll be empowered. Their evil will have an element of spirituality to it. That will be the flourishing and the blossoming of those weeds. Torah's divine vitality. Torah's just the most wondrous thing. It's wisdom from heaven on high. It's divine wisdom. Somehow, magically, wondrously, it's captured in physical terms. But the vitality, the power, is the same unadulterated power that exists on high. And that is like rain making everything grow. If you start off from a point of goodness, you'll have a lot more goodness. If you start off with a rotten, corrupt starting point, that may result in the flowering of evil. The Talmud, in fact, says that you can use Torah to advance the cause, the agenda of the Sahara. Man is like the tree of the field. Torah is the rain, the precipitation. What will sprout? What will come forth? Well, that depends on what kind of person we have here as the starting point. And thus, our final lesson of the comparison between Torah and rain is that there is a prerequisite for Torah, and that is good character or at least, at a minimum, the desire to have good character, the desire to improve. Because whatever you have as your starting point, that is what Torah will cause to sprout. When Torah is matched with good character, that, in fact, is fertile grounds for an elevated and refined person to sprout forth. What we've taken away from this single verse at the beginning of our parsha is a masterclass on Torah. Torah is like rain. Various types of rain. Strong rain, windy rain, dew, rain droplets. And that is falling, that is flowing upon the grass, upon the vegetation. And Rashi tells us that like rain, Torah gives us life. It feeds our soul. Like dew, it brings joy. It ensures growth. It strengthens our creativity. The Balaturim tells us that there are four types of rain to symbolize the requirement to study everything four times. The Chistuni reminds us that the benefits are delayed. The rain is only translated into growth months, maybe even years later. 
The Arachim tells us that Torah is the means to get flour. If there is no flour, that is a sign there is no Torah. Abstaining from it results in famine, drought, and death. You would have thin rain on grass, heavier rain on thicker vegetation. Everyone is expected to do what they can do. And finally, we learned a radical idea that Torah is rain, but we get to choose what is going to grow. We have to show up with a kernel that has the desire to sprout into something more elevated, more refined, and thereby we can reap the benefits of Torah for eternity. I think this is a fitting study as we end or we near the end of the sixth year of the Parsha podcast. And we get ready for year seven, please God. Torah is like rain. May we all merit to soak it all up, to soak it all in, and be elevated as a result. Let's get to this week's exquisite insight. And this comes from verse 4 of our Parsha. Hatsur tamim pa'alo, the rock, God, whose deeds are perfect. Ki mishpat, all his ways are just. he is a faithful God, a trustworthy God. And there's no falsehood, there's no iniquity. Tzadik v'yashar hu, he is a tzadik, he is righteous, and he is upright. The verse tells us that God is Kel Emuna, a God of Emuna. Emuna we translate typically as faith. A faithful God. Usually it's it's the believers. It's the populace that have faith. What does it mean that God is a God of faith? So Rashi tells us, that this refers to God giving reward for the tzaddikim, for the righteous, for the righteousness in Olam Abba. And even though God delays their reward, we don't see the reward of the righteous in this world. In the end, he will provide faith for his words We don't see the reward in this world, but he is a God of faith. He is someone that we can rely on. He is someone who is faithful. So here's the insight. I don't know if this qualifies as exquisite. You'll have to tell me. You'll have to tell me if this qualifies as exquisite, but this is something that certainly came at an exquisite time. This was actually during the Rosh Hashanah davening, during the prayer on Rosh Hashanah. During the repetition of the Amidah, the Chazar Hashats that I was fortunate enough to lead in our shul. In the second prayer, we say, Mechalkel Chaim Bechesed. God sustains life with kindness. He revives the dead with great mercy. He supports those who are falling. He heals the sick. 
he releases the captured, the incarcerated. And then we have a puzzling statement that we say about God that I never really understood what it meant. And he fulfills his emuna, his faith, to those that sleep in the ground. God upholds his emuna to those who sleep in the dust. The word that appears in our Parsha, Kael Emuna, a God of Emuna. It's the same word that we say in the Amidah every day, three times, four times on Shabbat and festivals, five times on Yom Kippur, on Yom Kippur. We say that God fulfills his Emuna to those who sleep in the dust. What does that mean? Perhaps this is what it means. Once someone has crossed over to the other side, once they are no longer in this world, once they no longer sleep in their bed, they sleep in the dust, then, in fact, they're able to witness God's faith in action. They're able to see, in fact, how God rewards those who listen to him. Is it exquisite? I don't know. But once it popped into my head, on Rosh Hashanah, on that most exquisite and auspicious day, I figured I filed it away. I said, this is going to be the exquisite insight. And if people don't like it, they'll have to forgive me. This is the season of forgiveness after all. They'll have to forgive me because I thought it was really interesting to think, what does it mean that God fulfills, he upholds his faith to those who sleep in the ground. Maybe it's the same idea featured in our verse that talks about the God of Amuna. I thank you for listening. I appreciate your listenership throughout year six of the Parsha podcast. We have one more episode to go. I'm really excited. It's a tremendous accomplishment, all of us. What an incredible achievement. We're near the end. We thank the Almighty for the success of studying the Torah and the Parsha week after week hitherto. And we pray that this will continue. Have an incredible rest of your day. A fantastic, uplifting, enriching, deeply meaningful Shabbos upcoming an incredible festival of Sukkot, of course. And please, God, we will talk again really soon from the Torch Center in Houston, Texas. The email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com.